Greetings, welcome, Assalamu alaikum everyone, my name is Saqib, I'm your host and today's podcast is on Erzgul and Ibn Arabi with Dr. Reza Shah Qasmi. We'll be exploring uh, topics from uh, the history of the Ottoman Empire, uh, we'll be dissecting various scenes from Erzgul to look at their spiritual significance and also discuss the relationship of Erdogan with Ibn Arabi. Dr. Reza is uh, a scholar in the field of Islamic studies and comparative religion. He obtained his PhD in comparative religion from the University of Kent. Uh, he's written some phenomenal books, including Justice and Remembrance, Introducing the Spirituality of Imam Ali. He's an advisor on the Hikmah Project. Um, and uh, you can read a more thorough introduction or biography on the website. Before we start today's podcast, uh, we now have Patreon subscriptions if you would like to support this project. And it gives you access to bonus material, transcripts, uh, newsletters, and the opportunity to ask questions to uh, upcoming guests. So, without further ado, here's the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Reza. It's wonderful to have you on our show today. Thank you very much for inviting me, Sakib. It's an honor to be on your Hikmah project, and I really look forward to uh, speaking about this fascinating subject that you have proposed. Dr. Reza, could you make sense of or tell us what you felt when the first scene of the first episode of the first series that uh the, the scene where Wildemir and Ertogol are beating a sword into shape uh and and doing dhikr at the same time what's the spiritual significance of that scene yeah that's a, that's a very good question um i was very very struck by that that this series that lasts for hundreds and hundreds of episodes, I think it's 400 episodes or something, that it should begin the first two minutes of these thousands of hours should begin with um, this scene of the wild demir, as you say, with Ertugrul beating into shape this molten iron to make it into, a, into steel for a sword. And they're doing a kind of dhikr, one of them bashing it and saying something like, Haq Allah, the other one saying, La ilaha illallah, Allahu Akbar. And they're going, doing some kind of dhikr in unison while beating, while hammering this, this sword into shape. And then, as I remember, um, Ertugrul says, when the Waldemir takes the sword away and, and puts it into whatever it is that he puts it into, uh, Ertugrul says, even the sword could not withstand the dhikr of Allah. It had to submit. You see, absolutely full of, of mystical and spiritual and operative significance. What I mean by operative is that the you know, the fundamental core of Sufi practice is the dhikr Allah. And so beating this sword is beating the soul. It's hammering away at the soul with the dhikr 
That's what the dhikr is doing. That's the name of God is doing. Our soul is like that, that steel, that iron that's being, that being hit. The steel is coming out of it. It's being knocked into shape. It hurts. It's painful. But when Ertugrul says that even this inanimate thing, the sword, cannot take the dhikr, even it has to submit, it's a symbol of the way in which we, when we do the dhikr, when we're saying Allah, 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 it's the equivalent of a big hammer coming down on the nafs al-amara, the untamed nafs that needs to be knocked into shape by the nafs al-lawama, the one that's blaming, saying, you know, you should not be doing this, you should be doing that, and you're going to be beaten, but not with any words and any injunctions and any admonitions. You're going to be beaten into shape by one thing and one thing only, the supreme name, the name of God. That will beat you into shape. That will get you into order. That will make you submit. So that submission, that point of surrender, submission, that will make you a Muslim. That will give you the Islam. That gives you the peace of al-nafs al-mutma'inna, the soul at peace in the Lord. That only comes after the nafs al-lawama, the self-accusing, the self-blaming soul, has sufficiently knocked into shape the nafs al-amara so that it submits. I'm just reminded here of something that's relevant to the rest of the, the answer to this question, the rest of the scene from Imam Ali. Alayhi salam wa karramallahu wajhahu. He said that uh, God has made the dhikr Inna Allah ja'ala dhikra jila'an lil qulub. God has made the dhikr a polish for the hearts by means of which they come to see after being blind, hear after being deaf, and yield. They submit. They become pliant after being resistant and rebellious. This is exactly the process that's, uh, that's being described here symbolically through the beating into shape of a sword. Now that sword then becomes what? Dhulfiqar, symbolically speaking. Once it's really knocked into shape, that sword is the, not just the symbol, but it's immediately mentioned by Ertugrul within about 10 seconds of his statement that even the sword has to submit to the divine name. He's presented with a, a wonderful sword by the wild Demir. He unsheathes it. And he looks at it and says, well, mashallah, I wonder how many of the enemy are going to fall. Uh, the, how many of the unrighteous people, the zalim, the tyrants, are going to be felled by this sword? But then what does Ertugrul say? La fata illa ali, la saif illa dhul fiqar. He actually says it the other way around because there are two versions of this hadith. And it's a hadith from the Holy Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He said that he heard a voice, a heavenly angel, at the Battle of Uhud, come down when Imam Ali was defending the Prophet against these terrible waves of attacks after the, the uh, cowardice and worldliness of the archers from behind. And they left their positions, wanting the booty prematurely. Khalid ibn Walid wheels around the mountain of Uhud with his troops and comes down from behind. And Imam Ali is one of the great heroes who helps to save the day. 
And it's on that battlefield where the prophet said that he heard an angel, a heavenly voice saying, La fata illa ali, la saif illa dhul There is no chivalric youth, no hero, no young man except Ali, and there is no sword except dhul and sometimes that hadith is the other way around, as it is in Ertugrul, where they said, no, there's no sword, but Imam Ali's sword, Zulfiqar, and there is no youth, no hero, no knight, no chivalrous, chivalrous hero, but Ali. So there you have it, the very beginning of Ertugrul. The whole of these thousands of hours of thrilling entertainment and spiritual upliftment and moral training of the soul, of the character, of marveling at these scenes of incredible courage, of almost superhuman strength, all coming from what? The same faith in God that Ali ibn Abi Talib had that made him the hero par excellence of Islamic society after the Prophet. It was Imam Ali who was the key transmitter, let's say, of the tradition of Futuwa that came right through all of the pre-Islamic religions and particularly emblemized by Abraham, who was the person, the, the prophet, who not only took on the idols and destroyed them, but who was thrown into the fire as a punishment. And the fire was told to become cool for Abraham. So Abraham is known as the sort of founding father of Futuwa. He stands for Futuwa in all the religious traditions, not just the Semitic ones. And Imam Ali is the one who, as it were, concentrates that Futuwa tradition in his own person and then transmits it all the way through so that all these empires, the Ottomans, the Mughals, the Soviet, particularly after the Mongol devastation, all of the Islamic empires were in one way or another reconstituted on the basis of the paradigm of the saintly warrior king philosopher that Ali ibn Abi Talib was. In one way or another, he was at the center of all of their efforts to reconstitute their legitimacy in the post-Mongol period. And that was because in the pre-Mongol period, he was at the heart of the Futuwa tradition, which is mentioned in a later episode. In, in fact, it's when Ertugrul is finally initiated into Futuwa it's the most, one of the most powerful scenes in the whole series, I think, when he's actually initiated, he gets a shirt put on him, he receives the khirqa, the mantle, and he now is, after all those trials and tribulations he's been through, he's finally given the mantle of Futuwa, and he's finally a fata in the line of Imam Ali. And that comes, I can't remember where, season three or season four, it's very, very long way off, but it starts, the seed of that is right there in the first two minutes when he's given, where he gives us this tremendously significant statement. Dr. Reza, can you tell us about the Ottoman Empire and just to set the context and, and just to play devil's advocate, isn't uh, Ertugrul all about nationalism? This Ertugrul is one of the epic stories of our time. Um, in its own way, it's comparable to the great epics of Homer, for example. Um, at a touch, the Mahabharata. 
know, this is an epic narrative. It's mythological. It's not supposed to be taken as historical truth. No one thinks that all these things actually happen. Most of the, the scenes are fabrications, but fabrications from what? From the imagination of the creators of this extraordinary series. Uh, based on certain historical evidence of uh, the existence of a man called Ertugrul, who was the father of Usman, who was the founder of the Ottoman Empire. Now, these are all historical facts, but the mythological content is what really makes this series reach out across the centuries and touch the hearts of so many millions of young Muslims all over the world and translated into all these different languages and how many, how many um, uh, series or dramas or documentaries or films or whatever could come close to the record of Ertugrul. So there's something really powerful going on here which goes far beyond any question of its mere historicity or lack thereof. It's a question of the way in which mythology has, uh, mythology has been built around, I suppose I would say three axes, three poles around which the mythology is woven. First, there's the, mytho the, the axe, the pole of, of course, Islam, the, the religion of Islam, and how the, the founding of the Ottoman Empire was the founding of a kind of resurrection of Islam in the post-Mongol period. That's why I think it's called Resurrection Ertugrul. It's all about the way in which through Ertugrul and Osman, the founding of the Ottoman Empire, you saw Islam, as it were, being resurrected from the ashes of the Mongol devastation, just as analogously you could say what's happening in India under the Mughals and in, in Persia eventually under the Ilkhanids and so on. But the Ottoman, this was an empire that was very different from the Mughals and from the Safavids because the Ottoman Empire was this massive, massive, uh, multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-religious entity that survived for 500 plus years, over half a millennium. And it's regarded by the historians as one of the most successful empires in history, full stop. Successful in terms of administrative efficiency and in terms of a certain level of tolerance and justice and acceptance of diversity that is unequaled based on a monotheistic idea, not based on a polytheistic idea when anyone's religion goes because anyone's God is just as good as anyone else's. This was a religion based on monotheism, one God, one religion, and at the same time accommodating all of these different religious traditions. So, I mean, I know I'm, I'm straying from your question, but I just want to give a little bit of context to it. Um, and since this is our first of hopefully six such uh, discussions, um, I'd like to mention this point in particular, which is that um, some criticisms that have come to me from people about Ertugrul, about the series, is that it's very nationalistic. It's all about Turkish nationalism. And that's the second of the poles, if you like. I said Islam is the first pole or the axis around which the mythology comes. The second is the, 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 the Turkish people, the Turkish character, the Turkish soul, the Turkomans. And the third pole, you might say, is 
the pole, the axis around which this mythology is woven, is the mythology or the pole of the archetype of the hero. Heroism. What does it mean to be a hero? Why Ertugrul? Why Osman? Now, what is it about these individuals that makes them heroes worthy of our veneration, worthy of our emulation, reaching out and asking us to respect and to be devoted to their example? So there's heroism, there's the Turkish character, and there is Islam. And these are poles which are very real. And that's why the mythologies that come out of them have that uh, constantly carry with them a perfume of the reality which they are putting into mythological form. You get a perfume. That's why so many people from such a wide spectrum, from young children who are just excited by the, the tremendously dramatic scenes and the heroism and so on, the valor, the courage, to all the way to people like us discussing the spirituality and the metaphysics of what's being expressed. You know, that kind of range can only come from something that touches a, a, a chord which links mythology, religion and spirituality, heroism and virtue and the soul and character, all the way through to our own dynamic, our own vital concerns of our own here and now, what are we confronted with? And how can we use these extraordinary gifts of grace, of the religion, of an ethnicity, of heroism, whatever it is that God has given us, how can we benefit from this and put it into practice? Now, just to go back to what I wanted to say about um, the extraordinary nature of the Ottoman Empire, one of the criticisms that has come to me is that this episode, the, this series is nationalistic. It promotes the Turkish nation and the greatness of the Turkish race, that it's racist and that it's totally putting down, totally denigrating the Christian religion because of the way the Crusaders are portrayed and even the Mongols who are just seen as total savages and barbarians with no real religion, no real culture. Um, and so this is a kind of, you know, Turkish nationalistic Thing. That's come to me. And I would reject that on various grounds, and we can go into that in some detail. Maybe now I should just quickly say the main refutation of that is that the that if you take into account the other poles that I'm talking about, the pole of character and heroism, and the pole of religion and Islam, then you can see that the particular Turkish genius is contextualized by something that transcends nation, race, and so on. What is it that transcends the nation and the race? On the one hand, the religion, and on the other hand, character. And because it's all about good character, all about true courage, devotion, loyalty, reliability, total faith, doing one's duty to the best of one's ability, absolute humility, and all the other things that have come through this extraordinary series, that aspect, that character, is what the Prophet was referring to when he said in one of the most amazing hadiths, um, I was only raised up as a prophet. I was only sent to you as a prophet for the sake of completing or making perfect, or making total, 
the most noble traits of character, makarim al-akhlaq, the most noble traits of character, nobility of character. That's the only reason I was sent to you as a prophet. So this is one of the ways in which Eftugrul, the series, helps us to see the absolutely central nature of character formation, development, and perfection according to the prophetic paradigm, which takes in all possible perfections of soul, beauties of soul, beauties of heart. So that is, is my immediate refutation of this notion that Ertugul is somehow promoting Turkish nationalism. No, it's promoting a great soul, a great character. What does it mean to have that? And it's promoting the religion of Islam, which transcends tribalism. Now, as you may know, the Prophet also said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that there is no asabiya in Islam, no tribalism. And yet asabiya is the quality that Ibn Khaldun says is what held societies together, group loyalty, group spirit. So how do we reconcile these two things? By saying that the tribalism that says that my tribe is right uh, without any possibility of denying its righteousness or its value or whatever, my tribe right or wrong, it's that that's got to go. Your tribal loyalty has to be subordinated to the truth. And that's why one of the great things about Ertugrul is that you see again and again, the people who are not true to the tribe are the ones who are taking Islam the least seriously as well. So tribalism clearly goes hand in hand in its negative sense with a lack of piety. But when tribalism is allied to religion, then you get proper group spirit, cohesiveness. And this is what the Ottoman Empire was based on. Group spirit, that the, um, the Janissaries, for example, the backbone of the Ottoman Empire, the Janissaries, were fiercely loyal to each other. They were all, nearly all, members of the Bektashia order, which goes back to Haji Bektash in the 13th century, which in turn goes back to Imam Musa al-Kadhan, the uh, 7th Shiite Imam, who uh, plays a very important role in the articulation, the later articulation of this beautiful synthesis between 12 Imam Shiism and the cultural form that Islam took in the Ottoman Empire. All over the Ottoman Empire, you, you see this devotion to the 12, quote, Shiite Imams, but they're not called Shiite. They're just the 12 Imams. They are the, the Ahlul Bayt. So you see this very strongly emphasized both in Ertugrul, the love of the Ahlul Bayt, particularly Imam Ali, as we'll come to in response to your question in a minute. Um, but also in, in the other program, the other series called Yunus Emre, which has the 12 Imams and Imam Ali in particular, again, running right the way through those series. So that's how I would respond to the uh, argument that this is somehow some nationalistic thing. It's not. It's about religion. It's about tribal and family cohesiveness within the framework defined by religion. And it's all about character development. So I just want to mention this one point about the tolerance of the Ottoman Empire, which streams forth from, as it were, from the dream that Osman had, according to certain historical sources that Osman dreamt 
one night at the house of a, of a Sufi, a Baba, that a, a tree sprouted from his chest and came all the way up and that its shade went all the way from east to west. And he told the Baba this dream and the Baba said, this means that from your loins will spring an empire that will bring the shade of justice and peace and order to the whole world, east and west. And that's what happened. Now this peace and justice and order that characterized the Ottoman Empire more or less for over 500 years, that's a massive, massively important historical fact for the record that for over 500 years, this, this multi-ethnic, multi-religious community functioned so well that according to John uh, Locke, the great founding father of liberal philosophy in the West, he wrote his famous letter concerning toleration in 1648 or something like that. And in that letter that he addressed to the princes of his time, remember this is immediately after the 30 year war, that devastated Central Europe, you know, totally devastated. It was Protestants, not just Protestants versus Catholics, but also Protestants against fellow Protestants, Catholics against Catholics, they were all fighting it out. And in certain parts of Germany, one in three people were killed. That was the mortality rate. One in every three people lost their lives in certain parts of Germany, the Germanic principalities. Um, so Locke wrote this letter as a kind of plea to the princes of his time to say, look, we have got to tolerate each other. We've got to tolerate our religious differences. Do you not think, he said in his letter, it's not verbatim, but it's as I remember it. Do you not think, he asks his princes, that the Turk will be laughing at us when he sees us savagely killing each other over our religion and in his capital of Constantinople in his capital it's possible for a Protestant or a Catholic or an Arminian to build their church without any problems whereas we can't do the same in Europe we will not tolerate each other's minor differences in religious uh, faith in religious creed but in ottoman turkey under the the saracens the turks the barbarians we're all free to practice our religion do you not think the turk will laugh at us mm. this was how john locke put across the idea the necessity of tolerance by using the ottoman counterexample. That's wonderful, uh, Dr. Risa, and I'm sure we'll continue uh, more discussions of particular uh, scenes from Ertugul and, and uh, evaluate them on, on all sorts of levels. Um, but the one thing that I, I need to ask, uh, absolutely essential, uh, is uh, the role of Ibn Arabi, how he, how, what you think of his portrayal in, in the series and his significance it, with Ertugul. So in answer to your question about Ibn Arabi, it is, there's one episode um, in, uh, I think it's, uh, it's in the second or the third season, when Ertugrul is at a low ebb, and he sees that he's in terrible trouble, and 
he's depressed, basically. And Ibn Arabi says to him, you are being tested. Look at the clothes that you're wearing and look at your sword. You've got leather. How do you think that leather came to be pliable enough to, for you to use as clothing? How do you think your sword, this goes back to what we were talking about, how do you think your sword was knocked into shape? Through repeated beatings, repeated beatings, and then it became pliable. Then it becomes, as, you, as Artigul himself said, even the sword submits after sufficient dhikr and beating. So Ibn Arabi is kind of reminding us of what Ertugrul said at the very beginning by talking to him about his leather clothes and his steel sword. And so he said, that's, how, that's what's happening to you, Ertugrul. You are being tested. You are being beaten. You are being beaten into shape. And then Ertugrul says, but all right, that's me, but why are my family, my friends, why are they going through such difficulties? All because of me, my tribe. He says, Ibn Arabi says, that existence is a maktab. It's a school. Existence is a maktab. I heard the Turkish, you know, I, I, I have to depend on the translation, of course, but I heard the word maktab. So he's saying existence is a school. Everyone is a student. Talabe, I heard that as well. Everyone is a student seeking from this school of existence. God is the only teacher. It's what Ibn Arabi is saying to him. Existence is a school. Everybody is a student. God is the only teacher. God manifests his names and his qualities in tajalli. I also heard this word. The tajalli is one of the core concepts in Ibn Arabi's whole conceptual schema. It's probably the central one. That there's nothing in existence that is not a manifestation. Now, tajalli doesn't just mean manifestation. It means a self-revelation, a self-disclosure. So that it's not as if I produce for you something that I'm hiding under my robe and say, this is a pen. It's actually the equivalent of God disrobing himself and saying, well, no, this is me. It's my self-manifestation. But how do I manifest myself? not through my essence, which is impossible, but through my names and qualities, so that every single thing in existence is a tajalli, a self-revelation of the one and only reality of God. So he uses that. He says, God manifests his names and qualities through tajalli, and he puts all of us to the test. And the word used here, again, I heard it in the Turkish, same in Persian and Arabic, imtihan. You're, we're all being put to the test. And there will be a combination of qahar and lutf. Qahar is all crushing, all conquering power. And lutf is all loving gentleness. The subtlety, the infinite subtlety of that love which penetrates every single thing. But sometimes the manifestation of qahar outweighs that of lutf as Ibn Arabi is saying here, that sometimes these manifestations of God will be according to his all-crushing power and at other times his all-embracing mercy. Whether it's qahar or lutf, whether it's rahma, he says, or bala, it can be compassion and mercy or it can be severe trial and testing. 
But all of them, he says, this is the core of the teaching in the scene, all of these things are from him. Everyone lives according to this test that God puts that individual through. Every single one of us is going through this. This test all comes from him. How do we pass the test? Ibn Arabi asks. He answers the question by submitting to God. Exactly what Ertugrul had said at the beginning of the series, that this sword, even the sword has to submit to the irresistible power of the invocation. So we pass our test by submitting to God, whether the manifestations around us and within us are dominated by his crushing power or by his uplifting love. We have to submit to that test and then submitting, submit to him. And in submitting to him, we pass the test. So everyone lives their own test. Then once you've passed the test, he says, and you have submitted to God completely, then you will become Ertugrul. He's now speaking to Ertugrul directly. You will become the greatest warrior, the greatest hero, because submission implies the most sublime heroism. Once you have really submitted, then your heroism is at the highest pitch of its possibility. With the depth of your submission goes the height of your heroism. That's what Ibn Arabi is implying. Then he also says that submission implies helping your brother, being good to other people, but always without forgetting God. And that's the element of Vic that comes in at the end of uh, this discourse that he has with Ertugrul, this very important point that goes right back to the vicar, that all of this is possible, the submission, this elevation through submission, this heroism that will be given to you as a gift, and you must help your brother, but you must never forget God. So in all of your outward activities, however much you're dominated by your duty to do good to others, it will only have complete value if you're doing it in the remembrance of God. And then it will transform your virtuous action into a mode of spiritual elevation. Dr. Rissa, can I, if possible, just ask one last question before we close our session today, given it's the closing. You started uh, our session with uh, reciting uh, a particular passage of the Quran. Could you just say why you chose that passage and if it has any significance to our our discussion today right well you see yes i i recited the surah al-fatiha which is the opening and this fatiha this fatah notion is also very much um, in evidence in the surah al-fatah and it's those opening verses of the surah al-fatah the surah of the victory the opening uh, and remember that fatah is the singular of of uh, well, actually, it's futuh is the singular, and futuhat is the plural. So fatah means a mystical opening, but it also means an outward military conquest. So the two things go hand in hand in the, what's called the greater jihad, the jihad al-akbar, the, the, the struggle against one's own soul, what we were talking about earlier, the nafs al-lawama, uh, beating into shape the nafs al-amara. And... So I, I recited those verses 
partly because it's a continuation of the idea of the Fatiha, the opening, that which opens the way, uh, and, but also because in the series, Ertugrul, it comes in at least two places. Um, and I hasten to add, I haven't seen anywhere near all of the episodes. I've only watched some of the first season and some of the second, um, but I hope to watch as many as I can. Um, but that I've noticed that Ibn Arabi is reciting these verses in a dream, which uh, Ertugrul has in one place um, when he's, uh, he's just as done, he's again at the very low ebb, and he, he does his prayers, he does the salat, and then after doing the salat, he goes into a form of dhikr, which is, if I remember rightly, Ya Allahu, Ya Rahmanu, Ya Rahim, Ya Kaf, no, Ya Shafi, Ya Hadi, Ya Rahman, Ya Rahim, Ya Shafi, Ya Hadi. And he's repeating this as a dhikr. And then he goes into a, the dream world and he has a, a, a true vision, a ru'ya. And in that vision, he's on a horse, a white horse, riding through the forest. And he then hears in Turkish the translation of Inna fatahna laka fatham mubina liyaghfira laka Allahu ma taqaddama min dhambika wa ma ta'akhkhar wa yutimmu ni'matahu alayka wa yahdiyaka siratan mustaqima wa yansuraka Allahu nasran aziza huwa alladhi anzala as-sakinata fi qulubil mu'minina liyazdadu imana ma'a imanihim and it actually goes on, but this is all in Turkish translation. And he hears this voice resounding in the forest and his horse rears up and Ertugrul is wondering, where is this voice coming from? And then he sees Ibn Arabi. He joins him, they sit by the fire and then Ibn Arabi gives him some wonderful spiritual advice. Um, and then the other place that I remember this uh, passage uh, coming is when it's recited in Arabic and it's the very last thing that you hear, virtually the last thing you hear, the very last episode of the last season. And it's beautifully recited in Arabic. And it's as if this is the way open now. It's the end of this series. But the next episode in the story is the founding of the Ottoman Empire, the great Fatah, the conquest, both outward and inward. That's the implication. So that's the reason why I, I, I recited those verses. Dr. Reza, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure and honour to have you. And inshallah, we look forward to more of these discussions in the coming future. That brings us to the end of this episode. You can find the transcript to this podcast, as well as more information on upcoming interviews on our website, www.thehikmahproject.com, where you can also subscribe to our Patreon subscription and support this project uh, or also offer a one-off donation through PayPal. Until next time, take care. Assalamu alaikum. Bye for now.